Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel. I'm joined by my wife, Kristen. Hi. This season, we are focusing on deconstructing church, where the church has been and where it is going. In this episode, we are talking about the hoi polloi, the crowds, the people in the pews of the church, in order to better understand why the church is the way it is and how we can move forward. I really need to just say a little something for my Greek nerd friends out there. So I understand that when I say the hoi polloi, that rings redundant because hoi polloi is our Greek words, uh, Greek word for the crowd or the many. So when I say the hoi polloi, literally it means the, the many. So Hmm. I understand. And so Hmm. for my Greek nerd friends that are just freaking out right now. For the two uh, people who study Greek. Yeah, the two people that that know Greek. Yeah. But, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to be mindful of the least of these, you know. That's really kingdom-minded of you, dear. Yeah. Thank you very much. Us Greek people, we're very, we're the least of these for sure. Oh my. Um, So anyway, let's get, let's get going. Let's get cracking. So I shared a story first time we were together about Mm -hmm. uh, my In the Secret uh, last week in our our podcast with Rob Haddam. He shared his secret about the long uh, eyelash of his Eyebrow. eyebrow of somebody, somebody, I forget. So it is your turn. So yeah, let's see what you got. Well, We did have to narrow it down, so I hope there will be future podcasts to share these delightful stories. We're always we always want to share your uh, stories from church because the things that happen at church sometimes are just over the top. So one of the traditions we had at our church for our like big Christmas thing the the thing that the play or the show that all the kids got to do and there was a little choir and they rang their jingle bells and it was so cute and grandma and grandpa come and pack the house right because it's kids and they're so sweet and cute at christmas time yep nobody's there for jesus right well okay (laughs) oh my gosh we haven't even gotten there yet so we're doing this really fun christmas production and our, one of our traditions is we like to fire off a confetti cannon at the very end. And this was not like a little pea shooter. Oh, look, it's like a sprinkle of confetti. Oh, no, 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 no. This was a like this was a cannon to rival the Pirates of the Caribbean. Like Jack yes. Sparrow had this cannon on mm-hmm. the Black Pearl. Right. And it was full chock full of huge pieces of tissue confetti that would fill the sanctuary. It looked magical, like it was snowing and it was so, so fun. So this last year we decided, we didn't know it at the time that it would be our very last one, but we decided let's do this. It's going to be awesome. And we had a bunch of unchurched kids there from our kids club who were performing in the choir and we get to the very end and this confetti cannon goes Boom. And I mean, people hit the deck. People are screaming. They are covering their heads. They are on the floor. They are like, shooter, shooter. And in that moment, 
I realized, oh my gosh, we had just had a school shooting in our town just a month before. Like it was so fresh. It was so real. The whole community was connected and grieving together. And the instant that cannon went off, it sounded like someone opened fire in our sanctuary. Yes. Yes. Pastoral fail 101. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was really not a good call. So yeah, I think I had the mic and I like stood up. It's okay. It's okay. It's just a confetti. Yeah. That didn't go so well. Did not go well. No, that is for sure. Um, Lesson learned. Lesson learned. (laughs) So uh, for this episode, uh, what we wanted to do is Kristen and I are going to share next week. Ah. We do we we do have another interview with Andy Ashworth from Glasgow, oh, Scotland. So uh, just unbelievable. So uh, such a great yeah, such a great interview. But today, what we wanted to do is kind of continue on our theme of deconstructing church, and our theme for today are the people that that make up the pews, the people in the pews. Mm -hmm. Um, So often when I hear people talk about, you know, we want to deconstruct church or there's something wrong with the church or, you know, the church isn't what it should be. Somehow the venom at times, but the language is typically directed at the leadership. Well, if pastors were different, well, if denominations did things differently. And and I'm not saying that those things aren't often true or there's some, you know, truth to to those kinds of sayings. But I don't often... Yeah, go ahead. It's a mixed bag, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what I don't often hear is anything about the people that actually are in the pews. And so what we wanted to do in this podcast is to really talk about the hoi polloi, the crowds, the people that you find in the church and their ideas, their expectations, uh, why they're there, you know, in relation to the kingdom, in relation to church and how this needs to be deconstructed as well for the church to be the body of Christ, for the church to be that eschatological people of God bringing about his kingdom. Like we need mm -hmm. to look at it from this side of the coin. Mm -hmm. When I remember you talking about the crowd in the gospels is an entity unto itself. So the treatment, right? Am I, am I right? Yeah. The treatment of the crowd in most of the gospel writing is like it's a character in the story. Yeah. So there is a particular way of reading the Bible called narrative criticism. It's kind of birthed out of Duke University in that when it reads the gospels, it's reading it as kind of like you would read a story. You know, you're reading Mm -hmm. Steinbeck or, you know, the Harry Potter series, something. And it's looking at it, uh, the people that are in the stories are looking at it as characters in a narrative. And Mm -hmm. one of the characters that you'll find in Matthew and Mark that Matthew and Mark really kind of push are the crowds, right? The hoi bloi, Mm -hmm. or there's another word for them called the oklos, right? It just means the many, right? Mm -hmm. It is as opposed to the religious leaders, right? So there's really two groups that Jesus is engaging in. There's the religious leaders, which we know as the Pharisees and stuff. But then there's these throngs of people that are coming to him that are sitting at his feet listening. Hmm. And there's a narrative that plays out in this interaction between Jesus and the crowds. And I really felt like as I was thinking about this podcast that this narrative really describes what is happening 
in the church today, specifically mm-hmm. the American church I'm talking about, but it's probably mm-hmm. very true in the Western church. It's, it's, it's more and more happening in the African church in so far as the crowds have kind of taken over the church. So let me give a little quick Bible study here on Jesus and the crowd. So mm-hmm. First, the first time you really see Jesus interact with the crowds happens in, I think it's Matthew 6, no, Matthew 9 and Mark 6, where Jesus is looking over the crowds and he and it says that he has compassion on them hmm. because they are sheep without a shepherd. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's Jesus's initial reaction to the crowds is like the lost sheep of Israel. Mm-hmm. They don't know their God, right? It's, it's a reference back to Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, as Jesus is looking out over the crowds, he's not seeing a shepherd, right? And so he has this compassion on them. So then Jesus begins to engage them in ministry, right? He begins to engage them in kingdom work. And the more he's doing this, the more famous he's becoming or infamous, depending on who you talk to. Right. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's becoming more well-known, more popular. And the crowds begin to throng to him, right? They're just coming in mass droves. You see this at the feeding of the 5,000, right? The 5,000 people showed up Mm. just to hear what he had to say, right? That, that, that is unbelievable in the time when whole villages aren't even 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming to Jesus. Well, the gospel writers will then begin to talk about some of the reasons that the crowd are coming to Jesus, right? They're not just coming Mm -hmm. because we heard. They're coming for very specific reasons. And there's three words, four words, but three ideas that are used to describe that. And I won't get into the Greek, but the basic, the first one is preaching. Mm -hmm. Second one is teaching. The third one is healings, and the fourth one is what the word would kind of be translated as feedings, but you could also look at it as miracles. Mm -hmm. So they're coming to Jesus for the preaching and the teaching, for the healings and the feedings, right? That's Mm -hmm. why they're engaging him. Oh my gosh, have you heard this guy and the preaching he's doing, the teaching, it's nothing like the rabbis. It's coming with authority. It's so different. You got to come and hear this guy, right? Mm. Oh, man, did you hear what Jesus did to the leper? He healed him. Oh, well, let's bring my daughter. Let's bring my, you know, my mother who's suffering from something, right? Like they're just starting to come to him. And then did you hear what Jesus did with five loaves and two fish? He fed 5,000 people. That is amazing. Maybe he'll you know, touch my checkbook and give me a lot of money, right? So that's kind of why they're coming to Jesus. Well, as Jesus is preaching and he's teaching, he's doing healings and he's feeding, there is the next part in the narrative, which is the response of the crowds to what Jesus is doing. And there are three words that are used for this. The first one is they're simply amazed, right? Mm-hmm. How can a man heal the blind, right? How can this happen? How can he walk on water? How can he mm-hmm. take five loaves and two fish and feed countless people and then have buckets of the stuff left over? Like, how mm-hmm. can he do these things? The second word uh, that they use is that they're marveled by mm-hmm. what he's doing, but marveled in the sense of like inquiry to where who is this guy, right? Is he the son son of David? Is he Elijah? By what authority does he heal? So it's, it's Marvel, like, oh my gosh, but it's also kind of like, are we sure who this guy is? Right. I was going to say maybe incredulity, like they're, 
it's hard yeah. to believe that he is who he says he is. Like, how in the world is he doing that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good Ivy League word. Way to go, babe. <laughs> go Big Red. It wasn't, it, it wasn't for nothing. <laughs> right? Then the last one is just this idea of fear, right? Not that they're afraid of him, but that fear that is elicited when you're in the presence of the divine, right? It's overwhelming, right? Hmm. It's it's fall on your on your face, get on your knees. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man of God? It's the woman with the issue of blood, right? Where she comes down, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, right? That's the idea of fear that's happening, right? It's, it's, it's an astonishment. So this is the response that the crowds have to Jesus. Well, then comes the next movement in the narrative story, right? Yeah, you. Yeah. I I just want wanted to say the thing that strikes me is in these responses from the crowd, and obviously this is not talking about individuals. It's the crowd as an entity. Is you don't see devotion, you don't see the response to the invitation, leave everything you have and follow me, right? Yeah, well, that's the next point is Jesus, like the movements in the story, the next movement that happens is Jesus's call to discipleship, right? Mm -hmm. The akalutheho, right? The come follow me, right? Take up your cross. Is that uh, an Ivy League word too? Sorry. What? Which your akalutheho? No, no, that's Greek. <laughs> Ivy League, you don't know anything about Greek. It's all Latin. It's the <laughs> use, absolutely useless language, right? <laughs> So, <laughs> wow. So it, exactly. Yes, I know. But it's the akalutheho, right? It's the come follow okay. me. It's it's the yeah. it's the take up your cross. It's the leave everything and give it to the poor. It's the let the dead bury the dead. If it's the if you love your father, mother, sister, brother more than me, you're not fit for the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus is now kind of doing this dividing line, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to follow me or you're going to not. And then what do you see? as the response from the crowds to those calls of discipleship. It's a simple nothing. no thank you. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Uh uh. No, 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 no. They that's, want that's... they're there for the good stuff, but don't ask me to change anything, right? Yeah, that that's fine. I, I like the preaching, I like the teaching, I like the healings, mm -hmm. I like the miracles, but I'm the, this discipleship, this call to discipleship to give it all, it's not like that's not it. Mm -hmm. So that's not the end of the movement, right? So in the end of the narrative arc, so Jesus is now, you know, you have the passion narrative. He's going to the cross. You have the resurrection. Where are the crowds, right? Where are those 5,000? Where are all the ones mm -hmm. that sat and listened to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where are they? Well, they're, they're not there. They're absent, right? They're, they mm -hmm. are not there. So when the most important parts of the of the narrative happen, right, his death and his resurrection, they they vanish from the story. Mm. Okay? Then when we go forward into Acts, right, with Luke's writing in Acts, mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit falls in Pentecost, where are the crowds? Right? They again do not, not exist. There. They're yeah. not in the story. It's the 120 who did say yes to the call of discipleship, right? Hmm. It's it's the ones who were with Jesus for the 40 days in between. It's the ones who sat at his feet, right? What's mm -hmm. interesting to note in the story is you don't typically see the disciples come to Jesus for preaching, for teaching, for healing, or miracles. Hmm. 
Yeah. They get sent out to do that stuff. They get sent out to do that. But when Jesus originally calls him, right, he has this little phrase and he says, come be with me. Mm-hmm. The disciples are with Jesus because they simply want to be with him. The mm-hmm. crowds are with Jesus because they want something from, from him. From right. Okay. Crazy, huh? Yeah. So that's the basic that's the basic narrative arc. I feel like we're burying the lead. <laughs> so the basic idea is this is is as I was kind of ruminating on what's happening in the church and deconstructing the church. Basically, what's happened is the crowds have taken over the pews. Mm. The crowds have taken over the church, not Mm -hmm. the disciples. Mm. So all of the time, the energy, the resources, the money is devoted to keeping the crowds happy, to keeping the crowds, getting their preaching, getting their teaching, having your healings and your miracles and your wow worship. That's where all the time and energy is spent. Right. This is a fundamental issue that's happening in the church. Mm. Now, you can see this in how this plays out in the effectiveness of the church today. So if we were to go back to the story in Acts, right, you have Jesus is engaging all of the crowds and then he, you know, there's the death, there's the resurrection, and then there's Pentecost and the crowds are now absent. And all you have are the 120 uh, disciples in the upper room. Okay. In one day, the disciples turn 120 into 3,000. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, but it doesn't stop there. And it says, and they gather together. It's Acts 22, 42, something like that. And they gather together. And many were coming into their number daily, right? So it's not just like one-time event, 3,000, woo, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. We had Ren Collective and Francis Chan, right? And everybody <laughs> came, like, I love Francis Chan and Ren Collective, but it's not one of those things, right? So 3,000 mm-hmm. come and more are being added to their number daily. If you look at the church today, we have flipped those numbers. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to someone uh, the other day in in, uh, anticipation of this podcast, and I I asked her, I said, you know, your church, it's it's pretty good size, right? It's got about 3,000 people. And and she said, oh, yeah, at least 3,000 people. We have multiple campuses and, you know, Mm -hmm. all the the stuff, right, that you think of. The mega church, yeah. Yeah, not not bad, just that's the church she goes to, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, "Um, you guys have baptism services, I'm assuming, right? Or like at the Mm -hmm. end of the year, there's... Some sort of like annual report of how many people got baptized and saved. And I never count salvations because, <laughs> like, how many times have you gone up to an altar call? Like eight or nine, you know? Well, like- <laughs> I think when I was so when I was little and growing up in like a Pentecostal church, I'm pretty sure I asked Jesus to be my savior every week because yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't sure how this whole thing was supposed yeah. to work. I'm just gonna cover my bases in <laughs> you know, case just it did. Yeah. So you can't really count those. Those aren't good. Right. But baptisms, that's yeah. pretty like, I'm yeah. making a decision, right? That's a real thing. So I asked her, how many baptisms, you know, do you have, do you know, and all this? She's like, oh, well, we have, you know, we have a monthly baptism service, you know, and people get baptized there in front of everybody. I said, oh, well, how many people get baptized? Now, I'm not asking this to like get some specific response. I'm just asking. Yeah. And, and she said, Oh, about six to eight. And I said, okay, so that would be a normal average kind of baptism service. And she goes, yeah. And I said, so if I said 10 every month, would that be 
you know, if some, some months are more, some months are less. And she's like, she says, oh yeah. And I said, so about 120 for the year. And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, so basically your church has 3000 people and it produced 120 disciples. Mm-hmm. In the book of Acts, 120 disciples produced 3000 baptisms and more. Yeah. So just in that kind of understanding, you see why the church is so effect- mm-hmm. ineffective. It's yeah. because the crowds are in control. The crowds are calling the shots. The crowds are, are running the ship. You know, mm-hmm. the, the mon- they let the monkeys out of the, out oh, of the what is it, the monkeys in okay, the let's zoo? Not, oh, okay, let's not use monkeys as an analogy <laughs> because people might be upset by being compared to a monkey. But I think we know what you're trying to say. Yes. So the, the it's yeah. like the children have organized, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So this whole idea of the crowd, we see it played out in the church today. We wouldn't call it necessarily quote the crowd, but the mentalities are really similar. If we look at the way the crowd is portrayed in the Gospels, especially when compared to how the disciples respond to Jesus and the kingdom, right? So one thing that we see, and again, we're talking about Western church because that's what we know. Um, It could be different wherever you are listening to this. But one thing we see is this thing that we, we call consumer Christianity. It's like the food court at the mall. If you like traditional high church, we've got a church for you. If you like to sing hymns, we've got a church for you. And you'll go, I mean, I have been to mega churches where there is literally a menu of offerings. And I I remember one extreme example was this church had seven different worship venues on the same campus. It was all one service, but depending on the style of music you liked, you could go you could go to a different area, room, tent, venue on the campus to experience that kind of worship. And it was everything from contemporary hymns. I think they had a reggae and a rock, like a hard. I was I I think I told you I needed to leave because I was going to like overturn some tables because I was so upset that this is how far church has gone. Well, I um, went to the reggae tent because that was the cool <laughs> one. <laughs> so that is probably a very extreme example of food court Christianity. But talk about catering to the crowd. Yeah, no, it, it very it is really true. Like, so that I think that food court analogy that you use is is right on because we really treat church that way. We walk into the food court and we say, "Well, what do I feel like?" You know, and every food court has its you know its hot dog on a stick and its Panda Express and you know and then it's got its like burger. Then it's got some like. Cinnabon, don't forget the Cinnabon. Cinnabon, and it's got some <laughs> ethnic, you know, either Mediterranean or Persian, you know, something along yeah. those lines. Mm-hmm. And then it's got its Mexican, and then it's got its like vegan friendly kale chips with like sprinkled with dirt, you know, whatever, like one of those like right. super, super healthy places, right? Super and healthy. then so we eat dirt. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, 
<laughs> dust to dust, right? So we walk in and we're like, what do I feel like today? Oh, I'm going to go get Chinese and someone else goes elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, isn't this the same mentality when people are picking churches, right? What are oh, you yeah. looking for? You need a really good youth group? You should go to that church down the road. You want a children's ministry? Oh, man, that church, they mm-hmm. just built their million-dollar wing. Oh, mm-hmm. you want really rockin' worship? You should go over there. Uh, they open want- with Coldplay over there. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. They <laughs> Don't even get me started. Yeah, you too, everything. And, you know, you want really solid teaching, that kind of thing. You go over there. So we pick churches the exact same way as we pick what we're going to eat at a food court. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we pick it based on our tastes. Right. Like what we like, how we want the food served to us. I want Jesus and I want him served on a particular plate. Oh, right? boy. Yeah. I, like oh, I, God, I want it just I just I want it just the right way. Yeah. This is the same way we pick TVs. Right. This is the same yeah. way we pick cars. Right. Well, and isn't that I mean, we live in a very consumeristic society you and I have traveled to a lot of different places and I can say without a doubt, America is absolutely, we are consumers. Nowhere else do they have the level of like even the gift giving at a holiday or a birthday elsewhere is like so, 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 so restrained compared to us, right? Oh my gosh, my train of thought just left the building. I was going somewhere with that. You want to help me out? Do you know where I was going? I have no idea where you're going. I've been married <laughs> to you for 13, 14 years. I have oh no God. idea. I don't okay. even. Well, people who know us really well know that I had a really good point to make Kristen, about that. I don't even know where we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got no. it. I got it. It's back. Okay. So, so because we are such a consumer society, it's really fascinating that that part of our culture has so intertwined into our faith to where it's completely normal. The friends that I have, and myself included, have participated in this really insidious way to go about looking at church. Well, I should say being in community with believers because church has such a, well, anyway, we'll get to that later. But we all have this really insidious way of looking at it and we don't even realize it because it's so ingrained in our culture. If I don't like that burger, I can go to 10 other burger joints that have what I like. Remember, you know, the game we play in the car with the kids, what's your Mexican dream team restaurant yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> chipotle exactly like for the that. guacamole and chips for yes. sure yeah Cafe Rio for the tortillas yes and the uh-huh. shredded chicken we like that the best yeah and um oh my gosh what's my favorite burrito oh, oh. the um the little one yama taco yama it's taco yama for the burrito yeah for the burrito yeah you know it's it's so funny you talk about this because you see this in covid when when covid hit and the churches all had to go online right in in the beginning if you just look at the numbers with covid like first couple of weeks after you know stay at home orders the quarantine like the online numbers are just like they're just spiking right so you have yeah. a church of like 75 100 people they get like 300 hits and they're like oh my gosh revival you know yeah but as easter kind of hit and it and you know after that all the numbers started going down except you saw this like really interesting kind of dynamic take place except for certain 
churches, their numbers kept going up. And so what you saw happening, like the Barna Group did a, a little study on this, what you started happening, you see happening is people started picking and choosing which online services they wanted to look at or to watch mm-hmm. or be a part of or however you describe it mm-hmm. based on, well, I get my teaching over here because this guy's yeah. really good. But then I like to like log into Bethel because their worship is really good, mm-hmm. right? Or I like to go over here on this thing. And so you saw yeah. the same thing begin to happen during the COVID time is we begin to pick and choose what we like. Crazy. Yeah. And so how can you have a church mobilized? How can you have the people of God mobilized for the mission of God, right? When we spend our time choosing mm-hmm. quote unquote churches or meetings based on Panda Express or in and out. Oh right? my gosh. Well, yeah. and then I think it's good to say when we say the, the mission of God, what is the mission of God? It is to thy will be done. Thy kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So we want God's kingdom to come here on earth, just like it's in heaven. And it's the great commission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. Yeah. 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 So the second expression we see uh, that really influences the church institution, the institution of the church today, is we see civil religion. And I've heard you explain this really well. Um, I'll just say like the broad definition is civil religion was defined, I think, in like the 1960s by a social scientist who identified that there are basically the institution of the church is there to build up the family unit. Yeah. Right? So civil religion is basically, you can see it in politics is is where it uh, originally was kind of studied in that politicians will oftentimes use symbols of Christianity, like, you know, where you get the president puts his hand on the Bible mm-hmm. or a senator prays or, you know, God bless America, all these types of things. And well, they're the using president goes to church on Sunday with his family and he's photographed. Yeah. yeah. So when I say these things, I'm not talking about a particular president. I'm just mm-hmm. saying you can see this in the history of presidents. Right. Yeah. And so when they're doing this, they're not doing it to promote Christianity. They're doing it to have Christianity, to have the church uplift the political institution. Right. Mm. So the church exists to lift up a particular candidate to lift up a particular party, right? So the party or the candidate will say, see, God is on my side, okay? Right. So you see that all over politics. But the other thing you begin to see with the civil religion is that the same thing happens when it comes to the dynamic of the family in that the church exists to build up the family. So the church exists to provide youth groups and children's ministries and family picnics and Boy Scout clubs and Mm -hmm. soccer camps and all these things for the family. Yeah. Because the family is the primary goal. Church exists to lift up my family. Right? Mm-hmm. That's why I go. And the moment that children's ministry is no longer teaching my family, I'm going to go somewhere else where they have a better, mm-hmm. where they have a better dynamic. Oh, mm-hmm. I used to go to such and such church, but the youth pastor left and, you know, it just wasn't the same. So we decided to go over here because they have more, more. And, and here's the phrase you hear all the time, more ministry for my children. 
Yeah. Okay. So in this scenario, the church does not exist for the mission of God. The church exists to uplift the family. Right. Which isn't necessarily, I don't think we're saying that it's a bad thing to strengthen your family because God made families and he made them very powerful because you can see how the devastation that is wrought when a family, let's say, goes wrong, right? When something terrible happens within a family unit, the consequences of that are devastating, sometimes for generations. So God intends for the family to be a powerful force of good in the world and in our lives and in the lives of our children. However, there is nothing that Jesus says in terms of what his kingdom is like that says your kids are your disciple. So I can't even tell you how many moms groups I've been in or listened to or conversations where moms say, well, my kids are my number one disciple. Nope. No, they're not. Sorry. That's not kingdom. That is not what Jesus died for. Are my kids super priority? Like, absolutely. Like I would die for them. And I am super fierce, as you know, about, about shepherding their hearts and discipling them. However, it does not Having kids doesn't excuse me from being a laborer in the harvest. It doesn't excuse me from saving or sharing Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit to move through me, maybe with another mom or with my kids' friends. I sit here on the couch and pray for my kids' friends that they might come to know Jesus. So the the thing that you have in civil religions is is again like the the institution exists for the family you see this in like hinduism and in india buddhism and china where 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 the family dynamic and the religion are intertwined it's it's very much like mexican catholicism right you you can't you can't kind of tell where one starts and one ends you know they're, they're just kind of intertwined i think the last one that i would talk about in terms of you know kind of how the crowd plays out today is what i term mormon christianity you're gonna get into so much trouble for this one. Oh my gosh. but what what you know when you think about the mormon the mormon church you know many mormon friends so I, please i love you guys but the mormons they're really nice people they have really nice families they typically have, you know, I know this is a sweeping generalization, but, you know, it's not completely untrue. They're business owners. They're small business owners. They typically are higher up in their uh, vocational status than maybe might be normal for the American, you know, crowd. Like, mm-hmm. they're really nice people. They do really well, okay? And they outsource their mission. <laughs> so Mormons, like, Mormons never invite you to church, right? H- have you ever been invited to a church as a No, Mormon? you're not allowed no. to go. No, you're never invited. And the reason you're not invited is because you're literally not allowed to go. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like yeah. you can't go unless you've gone through these particular the steps. steps. Mm-hmm. So how do Mormons do mission? Well, they send their 19, 20, and 21-year-old kids out throughout the, the world. world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ding dong, knock on the door. Have you heard of Joseph Smith? You know, all those types of things. And there's, there's no like mission or anything that happens, right? The Mormon church itself is just like this holy huddle of really nice people with good jobs and nice families that go to church together every Sunday for a long time. 
Okay. Yeah. And so what you have in a lot of, especially suburbia churches, is what I call Mormon Christianity. They're really nice people with really nice families and really nice jobs that outsource mission. Right? Oh man! They pay. They pay other people That's to so do true, the work. Actually. To do the How work of the kingdom. How many people have we met over the course of our ministry that they? They will write a check. They have no problem with writing even a very generous check. But you ask them to show up to anything that involves serving or outreach or maybe being uncomfortable or dirty. I mean, you know, fill in the blank. They won't do it. They will write you the check. They will happily pay for other people to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that everyone is called, not everyone is called to, you know, go work in the slums or the urban, you know, inner city, like that isn't for everybody. But I do believe everyone is called to serve. And I don't think it's enough for us to be satisfied with, well, here's my check. Let me know if you need more, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's why I call it Mormon Christianity, right? We have our missions Sundays, we have our missions, you know, picnics or whatever the case is. We we put the eight people that were supporting on the wall who are missionaries. Now, I think you should support those eight missionaries. Mm-hmm. We, to a certain degree, are yes. those people. Yeah. But what happens is that becomes the extent of the missional strategy, right? They have a two prong strategy. We support missionaries and we invite people to our events. That's our missional strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And so how is that any different than the Mormon church, right? Yeah. Just a little bit different theology. And so, (laughs) you know, well, some major, (laughs) major differences in the theology, right? But in practice, it looks exactly the same. I mean, if you you took the the Latter-day Saints sign off, a local church and you put, you know, community evangelical. I mean, could you tell the difference? No. Well, and this is a funny joke. So I went to college in a town. Well, part of my college was in a town with like a huge Mormon population. So it was like an inside joke with all of us girls, because the minute you would find this really cute, really nice boy and you got to talking with him and you had hung out for like four times. Dang it. He's a Mormon. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, honey. Over and over again. As as your husband, I can't really relate to that story. <laughs> well, I was pretty young. But yeah, that was I the know. inside joke with all of us girls at youth group was, man, why are all these cute boys Mormons? Yes, that's very true. Um, I think but the last group. Tell. That's my point. Sorry. You cannot tell the difference between a regular nice church boy and a nice Mormon boy. There is like you cannot tell. Until they say something. Yeah. I think the last group that we wanted to talk about were the religious leaders that Jesus came into contact with. Because it's a very similar kind of idea when you get around to the back of it. Jesus really engaged with four different audiences, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And and the Sadducees were kind of the... um, you know, they were the mayors and the town council, and, you know, they were a little bit more in the political realm of things. They were the economic leaders. They were more involved in the culture, the Roman culture of the time, right? You have the Pharisees. They're more of the religious leaders. 
you know, they're worried about the, the word of God. They're worried about, uh, they're concerned with, you know, keeping things right and pure in the synagogues, things like that. Then you have the zealots, right? It's really easy to understand who the zealots are because we get the word zeal from zealots. But they were about down with the man. Right. We're taking down the Roman government. We're taking down, you know, all lives matter. Like this is all like they're like there's an injustice out there and we're going to bring it down. Right. That's that's the zealots. We're bringing we're bringing the earthly kingdom here on Earth. Then you have this other group called the Essenes, which you don't really see in the Gospels. But there's a lot of literature uh, that they were very influential movement at the time. And they're the ones that just kind of ditched everything and went out into the desert, right? Mm-hmm. We're just going to do our... Did they have a compound? Yeah, they they pretty <laughs> did. They, they had a compound and homeschooled their children, right? Like this is, this is the Essenes, right? We're just like, it's so evil. It's so bad. We're just going to separate ourselves geographically, yeah. you know, in every way. And we're going to kind of huddle up and we're going to wait for the Savior to come. Well, what you see in all these groups is when Jesus is interacting with them, they have different priorities than Jesus does. And this is where you get, when you get to the heart of it, it's where a lot of the clashes come in, right? So with the Sadducees, they care about culture, right? They want the Jewish religion to kind of be like something that you can really, we're accepted, right? We want to be accepted for who we are. Would this be kind of like saying we're culturally relevant? It, it it would be a lot like that, right? With the skinny jeans and the side haircut and, you know, yes. the, the southern accent, right? Yeah. Oh, my. They really care about culture, And the right? big, thick glasses that yes. you don't need. Okay. Yes. These are the Sadducees, right? They care about being, like, culturally relevant. They care about, in today's jargon, you would say, like, seeker-sensitive. You would say mm-hmm. cool, something like that. Sure. Like, The Pharisees also have a different priority, right? Even though it's couched in the most biblical of terms of Mm -hmm. all of the groups, their priorities are being right. Mm. We don't care about people. We don't care about even God necessarily. We have rules. We have laws. And we're right. And if you want to know how to know whether you're right or not, it doesn't matter what you say. It's whether you're with us or not. If you're not with us, you're wrong. If you're with us, you're right. And we got groups of these in the church today, right? Yes. They well, care I think about you doctrine. Hear, yes. I was going to say you hear it in couched in the terms of doctrine or truth. I hear a lot like, well, truth matters. But it's really interesting because that same group, they are the ones who are picking what is truth. Like they, they're defining it based on their own interpretation of the Bible. And it's actually this one particular individual's interpretation of the Bible, which I find to be full of hubris and like appalling, but it's, it is couched in this religiosity, right? Yeah. That's, it's the modern day Pharisee, right? So then you have the next, you have the next one, which are the zealots, right? They care about their version of the kingdom, right? About their version of politics, their version of social justice. That's Mm -hmm. what they care about, right? And Mm -hmm. then the Essenes, right? They just want to be pure and holy, right? We just want to be pure and holy. We don't want to have any part of anything that would like 
taint us, right? So you have these religious groups, right? As Jesus is interacting with them, they're at Mm -hmm. odds with one another, right? Not necessarily because of like theological arguments or doctrinal arguments or, you know, whatever the case is, or Jesus, you know, you don't dress appropriately, whatever. It's just the priorities are different. Jesus's priority is kingdom. Their priority is everything else. Mm. And I think when you when you look at yeah. that lens, you really see like at the heart of everything that we're saying here, mm-hmm. really the heart of, of what we're trying to get at is one of the, the major issue that we see that the church has today is that it's full of people with different priorities than the kingdom. Yeah. And the kingdom, uh, I don't know, babe, did you want to define the kingdom? I mean, sure, I can definitely jump in. I would say, you know, how Jesus says, we all know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, right? Well, what we see in the institution of the church, like within church buildings or church organizations, they're really about everything else, the vast majority of them. They're not about kingdom mission because when we say kingdom mission, well, I said it before, it's the rule and reign of God here on earth. And it's looking at what are all those things that Jesus said and did that show us what he means by kingdom. So the go into all the world and make disciples. Are we making disciples? Not really. The American church is shrinking at like an astonishing rate. And we are really proud of ourselves for having like six people get baptized in a mega church. I'm sorry. If we were operating in a kingdom way and going and making disciples and those disciples were making disciples, we would have more people getting baptized than attend the church, right? Or you would hope. Yeah, if we were really seeking the, the things of God, the, being kingdom-minded, loving our enemies, giving people the shirts off our backs, giving without... In abundance. Yeah, well, giving with abundance. There you go. Um, not judging people, right? These, it would look so different, wouldn't it? Yeah. One of the things I think you see really see with the kingdom is, is the phrase that really... Uh, kind of strikes me when I when I think of kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven, right? That that's kind of like the lens through which I I define mm-hmm. the kingdom, right? On earth as it is in heaven. But what you really see with the kingdom is the kingdom is advanced by disciples, right? It's not advanced by the crowds. And disciples are the ones who are willing to pay the price, right? Disciples yeah. are the ones who are willing to bear the cross. Disciples are the ones who are willing to let the dead bury the dead, who are willing to make Jesus the priority over family, mm-hmm. you know, work, all of those types of things. It's really advanced through the disciples, the people that really are willing to pay the price. Mm-hmm. And when you have a church that is about all of these other things, you you can't advance the kingdom like it it will just stall it won't go anywhere and that's exactly what you see like it's not only stalled but it's going backwards mm-hmm. and you know it's just interesting the response that we have is well we just need to make it bigger and better right we just yeah. need to have better you know if we had better preaching if we were cooler all that like these are the responses to this but mm-hmm. really 
what it comes down to is that mustard seed principle, right? If, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, right, you'll move mountains. It's not about the number of crowds that we can amass, right? It's about the faith of the small mustard seed. Mm-hmm. And so really the point of what we're trying to get at, I think, in this podcast is to really say we've got to move away. We've got to deconstruct the church and get everything that has attached itself to it. The family is priority, the the ministries that are really good, the worship services that I like, the, well, they have a gospel choir over here. Mm-hmm. Like the all production. the things, the production, all the things that have attached itself to yeah. church we have to remove all of those things and get back to the simple idea of on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Just getting back to that simple idea of the rule and reign of God and gathering together and asking ourselves, what is Jesus saying? What does mm-hmm. he want us to do? Right? Well, isn't it interesting how in the gospels, he sends out the 12, right? With no money and no knapsack and no cloak and and he says, go to house to house and town to town and heal the sick and cast out demons and do it all in my name. They didn't go to seminary, right? They didn't do four years of whatever training. And yet we have this idea with the organization of church that you have to do that before you can go tell anybody about Jesus. Well, he did that with the 12, but then he did it with the 72. And then he did it with a demoniac. I mean, you know, the demoniac said after he cast him out in the, I think it was in Gerasene, um, and the demoniac says to him, I want to follow you. I want to learn about this. He says, no, go tell your town and your villages what about what happened. Like, I, I'm sorry. He was just demon possessed like five minutes ago. <laughs> now, yeah. as a pastor, I have some glaring concerns that I would like to address. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't that a great example of how different, you know, we often hear, I think there are books titled The Upside Down Kingdom, but how, just how different kingdom thinking is from our own human thinking, right? Yeah, it really is different. It really is different. And I think, you know, if, if you're listening to us, uh, this podcast, and you've kind of stuck around this long, I think, you know, the, the so what of this, the praxis of this is, is really, I think we need to be honest with ourselves, right? We need to take a cold, hard look in the mirror. I need to do this. Kristen mm-hmm. needs to do this. And, and loved, loved one, if you're listening to this right now, I say this in all grace and all kindness, but you need to do the same thing. Yeah. Look in the mirror and say, how am I part of the crowd? Mm-hmm. Not if you're part of the crowd, because we are all part of the crowd. Like whether mm-hmm. we want to, whether we want to believe it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we're all part of the crowd. And Kristen and I are even more, how would you say, hun? Like responsible. Responsible for this because we were the ones putting on the show for the crowd. <laughs> like we were the ones putting on the mm-hmm. preaching and the teaching and the healings and, you know, all that kind of stuff for the crowds. And mm-hmm. we have to be people who say, I don't want to be part of the crowds. I want yeah. to be one of the disciples. Yeah, and amen. Jesus is calling his church out, especially you can see it in the midst of COVID. Let's separate the, you know, wheat Lambs. from the the, the chaff, right? Lamb the, the lambs goats. from the goats. Like, right. let's have this separation. And I really believe that if you're listening to this, 
that you're one, that God is working on your heart, and it's time to leave the crowds and go find some disciples and start worshiping with some disciples, start praying with some disciples, and start asking, what does it look like to bring the kingdom of God to our neighborhood, to our city, to our households, if you will, Mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? Right. Yeah. And I think it's a process. I think it's messy. And we've said it before that every time we try to think about our gathering and what we're doing right now, we kind of gravitate back to the the institution of church, the organization of church, the service, the production. Well, we could do this, that and the other. And then we have to catch ourselves and say, wait a minute. No, no, no. That's no. That's part of the organization of church, but that's not kingdom. So I guess this is an invitation. It's an invitation from, we believe it's from Jesus. It's from the spirit. He's moving around the world, waking up his followers to say, come and follow me. Leave your nets, leave your plow, leave your family, let the dead bury the dead and follow me. Are you crying? Not yet. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's really good. Um, The last thing I'll say, and we'll close, is this. If we we jump back to Jesus's interaction with the crowd and and that kind of story arc, one of the things that you see Jesus do is as the crowds come to him and they're wanting more and they're wanting him to establish, you know, a kingdom according to the kind of their understanding. He separates himself. He, he actually hides himself. And if we really want to see something happen, I think in the American church and the Western church, we've got to separate ourselves from the crowd. We have to move on from the crowd and we need to find other disciples that are kingdom minded. Maybe there's only one or two in your town that you know of. Start meeting with them. You know, maybe there's just a group of people that say, you know what, we have no idea what we're doing, but we want to be with Jesus, right? You know, if, if you're going to church because of the preaching and the teaching, you're part of the crowd. If you're going to church because of the healings, the great worship, the miracles, all the stuff they have, then you're part of the crowd. And I know you don't want to be part of the crowd, and I don't want to be part of the crowd. So let's all respond to that invitation of Jesus to find one another, to gather together, and let's start doing kingdom work. Amen. 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 Well, (laughs) thank you uh, for joining us on this episode of Only on a Sunday. Uh, Next time we have the opportunity to interview Andy Ashworth from Glasgow, Scotland. It is a fabulous interview. So good. You do not want to miss this. He is the co-leader of The Gathering, uh, the gathering, an aspiring network of micro churches, loving God, living lives on mission, and normalizing the supernatural. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to check out what we're doing at thelowrysonmission.org or on Facebook at The Lowry's on Mission. Once again, thanks for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye.